0: I'm Zach D'Amico.
1: And I'm Carson Cook.
0: And welcome to The New Auteurs, a podcast where we take the critical framework from the golden era of cinema and apply it to today's films and filmmakers.
1: On each episode of The New Auteurs, we'll go deep on one director, writer,
0: actor, or other filmmaker
1: using a singular film as a
0: case study in an attempt to understand their screen essence. Today's auteur, the man of the moment, the would have been jury president at the Cannes Film Festival, the Oscar-winning writer, finally, and director Spike Lee. And what better movie to use as a window into Spike's signature style than his latest, the Netflix-released Five Bloods? So, Carson, what was your first experience at the Church of Spike Lee? So, I think it was probably, actually,
1: Inside Man, which I would have seen around the time it came out in '06. It's a great teenage boy movie. A great teenage boy movie. And that's the thing. I, I I saw that movie before I really knew who Spike Lee was, or even probably really before I understood the who who, who various directors were. Like, I was not right. paying attention to directors. I was paying attention to stars and blockbusters um, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, it was a Denzel Washington heist movie. And that seemed great. And I very much... Remember enjoying it, and uh, and I didn't revisit it actually until until this past uh, this past month with our uh, our Spike Lee spotlight, and and it's very clear that it is a Spike Lee movie through and through. But I didn't have the context to to understand that. So I, I don't think I saw another Spike Lee movie until until quite a bit later, and it would have been when i finally saw do the right thing uh, embarrassingly late in in life but that was the one that obviously really hit home and, and drove me to seek out more more spike lee movies and that's still the one that i think hits hits hardest even after seeing a much larger cross section of his filmography
0: yeah you know do, do the right thing it, do the right thing also was not the first or second spike movie i saw but i just have this vivid memory of it being a movie that sort of shook my understanding of what you could do with movies. And and that's like a little bit of a cliche, I guess, but I just remember watching it and even just the opening scene with fight the power playing and just this like completely removed, mostly removed from the narrative dance scene that is just in your face, moment one, like visceral, physical. This is not like, all right, and now we start the plot in a normal day in the protagonist's life until all of a sudden the inciting incident happens, right? It was like, no, not at all. This is me, this is a Spike Lee joint from moment one. And that's when I began to understand A, like what a Spike Lee movie was a little bit at least. And also B, like how much he stretched the bounds of American movie making. Especially considering that, like by the time I watched this movie, you know it had been made twenty five years earlier.
1: Yeah, I mean we're we're going to talk about his latest movie and talk about that in the context of, uh, you know how that exemplifies or does not him as a filmmaker. But I think it's still almost inarguable to say that "Do the Right Thing" is the definitive Spike Lee movie. There are so many of his films that that I love, but. But that is the one that is just—it it encompasses everything he is about.
0: So that's interesting. Like, what do you see as both in the terms of this, this this podcast, but also broader conversations about movies? When someone talks to you about a movie that defines a filmmaker, or like this is this is the ultimate Spike Lee movie, but for anyone else, right? This is the ultimate preview next month spotlight Christopher Nolan movie, or this is the ultimate. You know Alfred Hitchcock movie, do you think purely in terms of like within the four boxes or within the four walls of the movie, or do you start to like zoom out and think of the context and history and the conversation around the movie in addition to the actual substance and style of it
1: yeah i think I think it 's almost certainly both I, I I often try to think about you know most what 's on the screen, but it 's almost impossible to divorce that from from the context in a lot of ways and you know when i say something like that for me the definitive movie it's often the one that when i hear when i hear spike lee i think do the right thing instantly it's 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 subconscious almost when i hear alfred hitchcock i think psycho even if that might not be my favorite hitchcock movie it is the in my mind definitive hitchcock movie because it's the one i associate in so many ways with
0: him and what he does do you think it's possible? Definitely not likely, but do you think it's even possible for Spike Lee to make a movie that displaces Do the Right Thing as the one you think of as quintessential Spike? I mean, it, I think he has the
1: potential to make a movie as good as that. And I think he's made movies as good as Do the Right Thing or close to yeah, it, namely yeah, something like yeah. Malcolm X. But but Do the Right Thing has, you know, a 30 plus year head start, right? I mean, that's the... Uh, That's where it comes down. It's going to be hard for something, you know, to think of something in the next little bit, displacing it. Maybe in another 30 years, something else takes over the conversation. That's very possible. But it would be,
0: it's hard to imagine. Unless he shocks, like, unless he totally upends filmmaking in a way. I mean, Hitchcock is the perfect example, right? Like, Psycho came 30 years into his career. And, like, he didn't make all that many movies after that, although he made, you know, a good amount, but it so upended what people thought suspense, thriller, horror movies could do, killing its main character halfway through. Now, obviously I was not alive then, so I don't know how quickly Psycho became known as like the go-to Hitchcock movie. So part of it could be what you just said, which was that like for a while it was something else, maybe, you know, the lady vanishes or something, but by the time we got to us 30, 40 years later, we knew Psycho as like the Hitchcock movie. So maybe part of it was time, but also part of it was like, you just totally disrupted the conversation around film and how movies are made that like, that is what it took to sort of penetrate that consciousness. Yeah, I think I think
1: you might be right that it has to do with the the innovation and it, it has to be something novel and you can keep making great movies and you can make Radical movies, but in but unless the audience is saying, "Wait, what is this? This is this is new. This is different." It may not stick in quite the same way. I mean, even to 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 further riff off of this, I wonder if the definitive Spielberg movie is actually Jaws, the movie that kind of just changed blockbuster filmmaking forever. Even though that's a fairly early film in his career, and he's made you know, tons of movies since and one best director for, you know, a, a masterpiece and and Schindler's list, that may still be the one that is the movie that most defines
0: him. So he he's a particularly difficult case, I think, because of how many of his like how much in the public's minds he, he rests like constantly. And like, I don't think it can be Indiana Jones. Like maybe if it's a character, if it's Indiana Jones or if it's a a series, but since there are multiple, it's kind of tough to pick one movie. But the one argument I'd make, which I do think brings up maybe an interesting corollary to it has to be structurally or narratively innovative is I would say E.T., which is it imprints itself on the minds of like a generation. Everyone watched E.T. growing up, whether it came out when they were growing up or it came out before they were born, they still watched it growing up. And it was like a part of your childhood.
1: Uh, to be fair, I watched Hook growing up, not E.T. Uh, so, so maybe that's there the definitive <laughs> Spielberg movie.
0: Must be Hook. So, okay, well, let's just say put ourselves in a vacuum, ignore context, ignore your experience watching it. Just talking about Spike Lee as an auteur, his style, his essence as a filmmaker. Excluding Do the Right Thing, what would be the next movie that you pick? And maybe maybe would you pick that movie over Do the Right Thing even?
1: I think for me it's almost certainly Malcolm X, which I, I think is almost the quintessential film about American history in in so many ways. That movie is, I think it, it comes a couple years after Do the Right Thing. He's obviously had a couple more movies under his belt at that point. There is something to be said for, that is a, the work of a more experienced filmmaker, and I do think it shows. Do the Right Thing is, is so raw in its energy. Uh, again, I think it's pretty much perfect, but there is something about Malcolm X that is uh, similarly really hard to shake, even though it's a, it's a very different movie.
0: Do you think you just see it as, like, because I see, I, I when I'm thinking about, like, okay, remove the context, what do I think is the ultimate Spike movie based on his style? I find myself just sort of lapsing into the best Spike movies, in my opinion, like, my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And I know you love, like, I know you love Malcolm X. I think it's one of his best movies. But I, I would toss out something like Summer of Sam, which, I mean, I really like. I like it a lot more than it seems a lot of people do, but I still would not put it in like what I consider to be top tier Spike Lee movies. Obviously that's a relatively high bar, but I think that movie, I mean, it comes like basically at the midpoint of his career. And it it is like, it is just a movie about a simmering community, about people with their backs up against the walls and how being forced into a corner Inevitably leads to hatred, and it leads to blame, and it leads to finger pointing, and it like all bubbles up into what seems like that classic Spike Lee ending, where it feels like he like came up with the ending first, and then built the entire movie around it. I often like feel that way when I when I watch his movies, but I would in no way say it is again like a one of his best movies. It just feels like it it has a lot of the elements that I I've come to know from watching his movies over the years as like a, a you know a piece of a Spike Lee movie.
1: Yeah, I think, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and speaking of Summer of Sam, I mean, is that the movie that you would kind of go out on a limb for? You think of the, the underappreciated Spike movies? One thing I found when, when doing research for this is uh, opinions really vary on a lot of his movies. And, and sometimes there's this, not a consensus, but a, a, a pseudo consensus around which movies are you know the least good. Spike movies and I have not always found that to be in my experience the case for instance I uh, I, I think Girl 6 which is seems to be fairly consistently derided is is great is right below kind of the first tier of masterpieces that he's made and I still can't put my finger on why why people didn't respond to it and I'm curious whether whether there's more in his his filmography that make you feel that way.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, so Summer of Sam is the big one for me. My my read on that film is that like he is presenting in New York as the son of Sam sees it. The dirty, perverted, twisted, dark, like quote unquote real side of New York. And he's not trying to present anyone in a flattering light. Okay, so I wanna I wanna go ahead
1: and run through a little bit of Spike's career because it is it is pretty fascinating so his his student film when he's at Tisch uh Joe's bed Barbershop is the first student film to be showcased in the Lincoln Center New Directors New Films Festival in 1983 and that's already a big deal quick tangent already on that film do you know you who the it? I have not seen it it's uh, only
0: available at libraries, and libraries are closed right now. Yes, I it's Im- to it's it.
1: impossible to see it uh, behind the scenes. Do you know who the assistant director was on that film?
0: Wait, yes, I think I do. I because I, is it okay? It's either Ang Lee or Jim Jarmusch.
1: It's Ang Lee, his okay. classmate. He, I knew he Ang went Lee. to school
0: with both of them. Yeah, okay.
1: It's the assistant director on that film, which is which is great and so that that's already a big deal that he's he's got his you know master's thesis essentially into this film festival and then he breaks onto the scene with she's got to have it in 85 his his debut and then his third film is do the right thing and that's that's pretty impressive for a third film and he's still very young that's 1989 and that's the the real breakout major critical success but then it gets snubbed at the Oscars. And I think this is fascinating because it's not the first time that this is going to come up that Spike Lee is just underappreciated by the Academy. So Danny Aiello is nominated for best supporting actor and, uh, and, and he loses, of course he loses to Denzel in glory, which is hard to be hard to be mad about, but then Lee loses the screenplay nomination to dead Poets society. and the the, the blank check podcast actually recently talked about this race because the lineup is pretty stacked. It's do the right thing, it's sexualizing videotape, it's Ooh. when Harry met Sally, and it's crimes and misdemeanors, and then Dead Poet Society is the one that wow. that walks away with it.
0: It's interesting, Um, you see like the tension there, like the late 80s being when independent film was really starting to make a move. And you see like that that category almost reminds me, I'm sure there are better categories, but like of the 1967 Best Picture, which had The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, but then also had Dr. Doolittle and In the Heat of the Night. And like you have like the the quintessential indie film, Sex, Lies and Videotape, and you have a Spike Lee movie, but then you also have like When Harry Met Sally and mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. Dead Society, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So, so that's that year. And he, he, he comes back. He, he makes a couple more movies and then you get Malcolm X in 1992. And, and like I already said, I think that's basically one of the defining American history epics, but it has this hugely troubled production. Uh, James Baldwin was supposed to write the script for the Malcolm X movie in the late sixties. It never gets made. Obviously Lee rewrites the script. Uh, Norman Jewison is supposed to direct the film, but he backs out after a, a general deserved uproar about a, a white man directing the Malcolm X biopic. So Lee takes over and he gets shafted by the studio. He uh, they, they limit his budget. Uh, they try to cap the runtime at two hours and 15 minutes, which would drastically compress the story and everything he's trying to do. And, and the movie eventually does get Saved financially by a group of very prominent black Americans, including Oprah, you know, doesn't age as well now, but Bill Cosby, uh, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan. Lee actually tells a really funny story about getting Michael Jordan's participation in the project, uh, in that he made sure to go to Magic Johnson first, get him on board, call Michael, and say, hey, Michael, you want to help out and, and get this movie made? Magic gave. You know, X million dollars. X million. <laughs> uh, what, what do you want to do? And and Michael's obviously going to give him yeah, he... X million and one because
0: he can't uh, can't be one upped. Um, so and so was that the beginning? Because Spike famously directed commercials with Michael Jordan. So
1: he he did, and he had directed the commercials beforehand because the commercials he's it's actually before. playing he's playing his character from. Uh, She's got a habit. Mars Correct. Blackman. Mars Correct. Blackman uh, is. You know, appears in the commercials with Mike Jordan, so I'm pretty sure it's before. I may be wrong on that, but
0: I think it's a little. Did you just call to... him Mike Jordan? Like you know, like your friends? I mean, I we we have a history. Not, yeah. I watched Madge, the last Madge Dance. Johnson, and, and I watched the last Dance. <laughs> <laughs> fair, enough. fair uh, enough. So eventually,
1: gets made and it comes out, and there's again critical acclaim, and again no. No Oscars. So it doesn't even get nominated for Best Picture, Best Director. Um, that's the year that Unforgiven cleans up. It gets a Best Actor nomination for Denzel, obviously very deserved, but this is famously the year that Pacino wins it, having never won before. They give it to him for Scent of a Woman. And it, which always kind of drives me crazy because they could have just given it to Pacino for Glengarry, Glenn Ross because he's also nominated there for the Supporting Actor. Yes, the same year. He gets the double nom. Who won Supporting Actor? Gene Hackman, who has already won an Oscar. Oh, come on. But he, he gets on the Unforgiven train. And so right. I, I always feel like they could have done that, although you do wonder if it had gone that route. Let's say Pacino wins a Supporting Actor. Does Eastwood then win Best Actor? Because certainly possible. Unforgiven is just you know, taking everything.
0: So really, no if Denzel st- wins for Malcolm X, so does he not win for Training Day? He may not win for Training Day. I mean, he's got I two mean, at that point. He'd have two at that point. And, and I don't know. And I don't he'd know. have the, like the, the important, I mean, like when he won for Training Day, I believe that was the first black actor to win lead actor Academy Award.
1: That is, that's right. And I think it's actually, is that the same
0: year that Halle Berry? It is. It is. Denzel got up on stage and literally, I think the first thing he said in his acceptance speech was like, I think he said like, you know, kill two birds in one night or kill two birds with one stone or something. (laughs) Okay. So, so
1: let's say that happens. Let's play, let's play this out. So let's say he's, he's already won for Glory and for Malcolm X. So he has two, he has two Oscars, including one in Best Actor the let's let's say he still gets nominated which i think is likely the other nominees that year are russell crowe in a beautiful mind sean penn in the uh the the film referenced last week i am sam will smith in ali and tom wilkinson in in the bedroom who do we think takes it if it's not denzel
0: So I think at this point Sean Penn hasn't won either, right? Because Mystic River didn't come till a few years later and Milk was much later. Yeah. Uh, He wins he wins both of his later. I wanna say Will Smith, because Will Smith never won one. But Ali was his first nomination, and still like he was barely making the transition from action movie star to like real movie actor.
1: Mm -hmm. And And that movie got mixed reception, I think.
0: I think he was the only nomination. Or one of the only nominations.
1: Yeah, it's it's a strange it's a good movie, but a strange movie. I think you're probably right. It's Penn because Crow had won the year before. Right. But that has more cascading effects. Okay. So so if we play it out, 2003, Sean Penn wins for Mystic River. This is actually where it gets really interesting. If they don't want to give it to Sean
0: Penn Which just they, two they years after. It is just two. They're clearly comfortable giving him two Oscars since they eventually did it. But it is only two years after.
1: So I wonder, I mean – at, this is better at the time than maybe it is now, but Johnny Depp won the SAG that year for Pirates.
0: Let's do it. What, were the, what are the other options that year?
1: Uh, you've got Ben Kingsley, House of Sand and Fog, Jude Law for Cold Mountain, and Bill Murray for Lost in Translation.
0: As much as I want to give Bill Murray the Oscar, I, I, think, it, I think it's Johnny Depp. Yeah, I mean, so. and this is the thing. Like, I, if you're thinking about like, okay, assuming that Penn does still get two, which one do they replace? And Mystic River and I and Sam are both fairly over the top performances. Mm-hmm.
1: What, what would have happened? What's the what's Sean Penn's other Oscar? Just to see which one so, they may be more likely to give him.
0: He won for Milk. He beat out Richard Jenkins in The Visitor, Frank Langella in Frost/Nixon, Brad Pitt in The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler. Mm. And I like the idea of giving it to Brad Pitt so that we could retcon this year's, but I, I think Mickey Rourke would have won it. I, that, like, that his comeback story that year was just massive.
1: It was, although there was a lot of weird... I don't remember if it came out during the campaign trail, just how bad he was to work with on that movie, I think. Uh, yeah. So, but I think you're right. He was he was kind of in it to win it that year. So that could have been the case. The other the other really fun category that year. So so Malcolm X actually gets nominated in one other category, and that's costumes, and that's a Ruth Carter nomination for costumes. And and looking back, I'm like, oh, that's that's outrageous that she lost. Until I saw who won, Eiko Ishioka, who won for. Bram Stoker's Dracula, which has the greatest costumes You know,
0: sometimes the Academy ever. gets it right. You just have to say, sometimes they reach down and pluck up the correct winner. Now, I mean, pluck from a Francis Ford Coppola movie is probably generous, but that's fantastic. An, an,
1: an insane Francis Ford Coppola yes. movie. Yes, uh, yes. So that, uh, that that I also can't, can't really, really argue with. But Malcolm X is really the last big movie to be in the Oscar conversation for Spike until Black clan has been in 2018. And he finally wins the screenplay uh, Oscar for that. And it, it obviously it took him that long, long to do, but he isn't really in the conversation again. He, he winds up having a pretty up and down run critically and commercially in the nineties and early two thousands, you get Crooklyn and clockers, but then girl sex. Uh, get on the Bus, He Got Game, Summer of Sam, Bamboozled, 25th Hour, She Hate Me. It's it's an eclectic mix of films. And then he makes Inside Man in 06. And that's obviously a pretty big success. And and really that's probably, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the closest he'd come to making a big, fun popcorn movie.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, right. So, I mean, it begs the question, which is, I guess, like the question of this podcast, right? Given the range of types of movies he has made i mean he's made i think defy bloods was his 25th or 23rd narrative feature after his student film and then he's made you know a handful of film documentaries a half dozen tv documentaries and you know concert docs he's he's filmed broadway shows he's he's you know all over the map in terms of content and substance and you know genre and so if you're going to distill that down into his identity as an auteur you know how how, I mean how do you do that
1: I mean this is this is obviously something that we we discuss pretty much every episode on this podcast and this time it's gonna have to be a cop-out for me because I don't really think I can give you one he has distinctive visual motifs and shots and and types of flourishes that are repeated throughout his films. And he has distinctive thematic ideas that he returns to. But but I can't really distill it to, to a sentence or to something in particular, because though pretty much every single movie he makes is very clearly a Spike Lee movie in its own way, he's he's so unique. He's doing it his own way every time. And it's a lot of big swings and they often hit, they don't always hit, but uh, he's doing it his way, but his way is, is whatever he feels that movie should be. And like I said, it's, it's clearly him, but, but I can't, I can't distill it down.
0: Honestly, I think you're absolutely right in that. That is a cop-out. So that's that's what I think you. No, I, mean, I mean, fair. I I, 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 I no, love with, with it. I like with it. No, I mean, like, I think you're right, and I think, like, I frankly, I think actually, it's important that one of us, like, have had the courage to actually admit that and say that, because I think it gets to an important piece of this podcast, which is that I think it's really important, and it's enlightening, and it's frankly fun to talk about and triangulate a director's essence and style. But like, we also have to admit that no writer, no director, cinematographer, actor is any one thing. And frankly, movies are never a result of only one person. They always have a little bit of everyone's personality imprinted on them. And so like, I think it's a really important context for when we do take that big swing at trying to define an auteur in one sentence that like, it's an exercise and it's an exercise to better understand them, not to put them in a box. That said, I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to- Put put Spike Lee in a box. (laughs) So, I mean, okay. Basically my pitch here is that he never, he likes to put his characters and he likes to put his audiences in situations where they feel uncomfortable. And in particular, when it comes to his characters, he likes to tell stories, he likes to write scripts, and he likes to use visual techniques that push their backs up against the wall, that make us, the audience, have a distorted sense of reality, make us question sort of what we know or what we thought we knew, and like to push people to their extremes and see how they react. And I think you see it in Do the Right Thing, very obviously, I think you see it We'll get into this, but I think you see it with Delroy Lindo's character, Paul in The Five Bloods. But then I think you see it in something like Summer of Sam where he is again, just turning up the pressure, turning up the pressure until you see, what do these people do under that pressure? Uh, I think you even see it in 25th Hour where he takes Edward Norton's character and says, this is your last day before you go to prison. Your back is up against the wall. What will you do? Who are you as a person? That's when we understand, right? He's trying to understand people and you do that by putting them under all this pressure and seeing how they react.
1: All right, I think I I'll admit you did a you did a pretty good job of of distilling it. So now now I feel bad for I'm mean, trying hard enough. I,
0: I, cherry, I, mean, I cherry picked the examples from his two dozen movies that fit it perfectly. You could also, you know, you could grab another example. And, and you, know, this, you know, the story of Malcolm X is like a massive epic about his entire life and not about like that one moment of climactic realization necessarily. So, I, you know, you're right. He is definitely isn't any one thing. But I think that's the, that's the thing that I would take away like from the most from his films.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, to to move into the five bloods, do you think that description that you gave? Would you would you say that applies to to his latest movie?
0: Yeah, ab- I mean, absolutely. I think on thinking about it more, I was shocked at how well suited a black veteran who supported Trump fit into Spike Lee's filmography. I mean, you look back at the characters in his films that are angry and they're angry because of what they've been put through in life, but that anger manifests itself in hatred towards other people and specifically other groups of people and like so many of the people in his movies could, would have been, could have been Trump supporters that just didn't exist yet. And so I remember when I first heard, I, saw, I started seeing interviews like a couple of weeks before when they started doing press that Delroy Lindo was, to, you know, Spike told him he wanted to be a Trump supporter and he was like, come on, couldn't I just be like a, a, you know, just a regular conservative? But I see why regular conservative wouldn't, that wouldn't be quite right. It is that like injustice-fueled hatred of other people because you think they're the reason why you've been screwed in life.
1: I mean, that's, that's a direct through line from... Do the right thing, which has this this montage of a a bunch of folks from different backgrounds just you know spewing slurs at a different group, and then it happens again in twenty fifth hour. You have this scene where where Norton, I think we talked about this briefly last week, where uh, where Norton is in front of the mirror and just uh, spewing venom about every possible racial and ethnic group in New York City. And 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 you see it here. I mean, there is this idea that everyone always feels like they've been wronged. And there are clearly groups, people who have been wronged much more than other groups, perhaps, but 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 it's there. I think that's that's something he is he is very interested
0: in. And I think you see the evolution in Defy Bloods because for all the playing him up as a Trump supporter and he's got his MAGA hat. There are some early scenes that I think Spike uses some shorthand around building a wall to quickly establish him as a Trump supporter. But for the most part, like they don't, he Spike doesn't belabor some of the cliches around Trump supporters. And it's less about who Paul hates and more about his own sense of having been wronged and this like self righteous anger. And I think what worked for me in The Five Bloods that seemed like the logical next step after movies like Do the Right Thing and uh, in 25th Hour as like a character exploration of Paul is that he's angry at his friends, he's angry at the people that he loves and that he like went through a harrowing experience in the Vietnam war with, because he's just angry at everyone.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. And I, I mean the moment in this movie that, that I think is evocative again of those two of those two movies as well, but is the thing that kind of just in a way defines the film for me and, and kind of defines Lee's, stamp on it is this monologue that Lindo, as paul gives near the end of this movie This just bracing kind of stream of consciousness directly to the camera speech about about it's about everything i mean i can't even you know pin it down it's about everything and it ends with the the raised fist and it is just this you know torrent of bitterness and resentment and sadness and reflections on what America is and what America has done. And, and it is, uh, it, it's powerful, but it does feel like kind of the culmination in some ways of this through line that he's been, he's been building to.
0: Yeah. I mean, like halfway through that scene, I was, you know, like 90% of me was just gripped and like, couldn't stop watching and, you know, holding fast to the edges of my couch or probably my dog. But like the other 10% of me was like, oh, this is, the, this is the spike scene. This is the scene. Like this is the, as I mentioned earlier, this is the scene that he came up with and then built the movie around it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't actually necessarily think he does that but it just feels like, oh, this, we were building, we were waiting for this scene. Are there, are there any other movies that, that Defy Bloods reminded you of? I mean,
1: it, it is clearly drawing from uh, a variety of movies about war in general, but the Vietnam War in particular. Apocalypse Now is very overtly referenced in this movie, but I I think that some of that, the the vibe of Apocalypse Now is really, is brought to the fore. It's easy to say this, but there's a movie called Dead Presidents, which is maybe the only other kind of fictional narrative film about... The, the Black experience in the Vietnam War, and you can really draw some parallels, I think, between the two just in how they really examine the toll that this took on Black Americans who, who often went home. They were not heroes to the people back home. They were what white America continued to treat them as. The, the thing that I think is really interesting also about this movie is it originated as an Oliver Stone movie. So the script yes. was was written and Stone was attached to direct. And it's very easy to it's very easy for me to see this being an Oliver Stone movie. He's actually someone who he it, it's a different kind of experience, but he is very invested in kind of the the justice and injustice of America when it comes to you know the people it throws in front of the firing squad in in these various conflicts, um, you can see this movie it would be a very different movie, but you can see it being of a piece with Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July and uh, and, and his other his other films. Um, so I think that there there is an evocation in some ways of those kind of seminal Vietnam War movies.
0: So it was originally written by Danny Bilson, Rachel Bilson's dad. Of the the OC and her writing partner Paul DeMeo, and when Oliver Stone dropped out, Spike and his writing partner Kevin Wilmot got a hold of it, and they they basically rewrote it to center it on the experience of Black GIs, which obviously defines the movie. Like, I, I, it's you can't just imagine the same movie but with different actors in it. It, it was completely rewritten, sort of from its core out. And it was a, he originally had a different cast suited up. That included Sam Jackson, Don Cheadle, Giancarlo Esposito. So a, a number of sort of Spike Lee regulars. And then John David Washington coming back after his his role in Spike Lee's Black Klansman and playing the the role of, of Paul's son, David, which Jonathan Majors ended up playing.
1: And I think there was a brief, I, I heard a brief discussion that that Denzel had maybe been, maybe not in real talks, but approached as as part of uh as part of that and they could do a father and son thing that may be speculation but uh but that would be that'd be fun to see
0: you know I mean and and as sad as it is that we didn't get that like I can't I mean I loved all all the guys who were in this Clark Peters Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Jonathan Majors we mentioned played uh David Paul's son and Norm Lewis.
1: Uh, yeah, shout out, shout out to to Norm Lewis. Uh, 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 yeah. uh we're big fans of him in our home because we're uh, we're big Broadway fans, and he's a Broadway guy more than anything else. And uh, a fun fact had been in Miss Saigon, the I was I would say seminal, but maybe the only musical about the Vietnam War. Uh, so fun, fun to see him pop up.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, and like I I liked them all, and I thought they were all very good. But I do think Delroy Lindo for me is the one that like. I'm very grateful that we got his version of that character, especially like, look, I mean, Denzel is obviously phenomenal, but like I have gotten very little, very, I have gotten very few meaty Delroy Lindo roles to watch. And especially after watching him and catching up on Spike's filmography and watching him in Clockers and in Crooklyn, especially he's unbelievable. Uh, I I was glad to see a movie centered on him.
1: Yeah, it's really great that, that he has this role as one of the, the great actors who's really probably underappreciated and underseen, at least by, by me, um, to let him really take this and, and make it his own is, uh, is really phenomenal. And he, you know, I, I hope that he can carry, carry some momentum to, to the Oscars, if they ever, if they ever happen.
0: Let's hope so. And you know, the other, the other movie, I see some, comparison to here is his most recent Black Klansman. And I see it in, I mean, first of all, I think a lot of Spike Lee movies are about recontextualizing history and recontextualizing the way that we think uh, about people and events. But with Black Klansman and Defy Blood specifically, he uses you know, present day footage of real life events or, or, you know, archive footage of real life events to center like the fictional story or in, I guess in Black Landsman's case, it was adapted based on a true story, but to center the story of the movie in the story of the real world. And in particular in both Black Landsman and Defy Bloods, he ends the movie with a coda that includes sort of very direct references to modern day occurrences with black Klansmen. He ends it with scenes from the KKK rally in Charlottesville during the Trump administration with defy bloods. He has some of the, uh, some of the treasure money going to black, a black lives matter group. Yeah. I, I think that that comparison
1: is, is really interesting, especially in terms of this use of real life footage. Um, it's a small part of the five bloods and it's a a larger part at the end of black Klansman. But, but one thing that really got me, we talked about, you talked about how spike wants to make you uncomfortable. And uh, at the end of black Klansman, there's obviously he, he cuts to footage from the Charlottesville rally uh, from a few years back. And, that is footage that I had actually actively avoided. And then I was sitting in a blackened theater and I could not avoid it. It was, I had to see it. And I mean, I, I, that was, it was incredibly emotional and and overwhelming and and terrible. Um, And in this movie, similarly, I, I had a similar experience in that I had seen the photo of the execution of the Viet Cong prisoner and I was actually unaware that there was video footage and to see that was just a, a jolt and 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 horrifying and and he and I think you can probably question whether you can question whether or not he should show those things and whether he should put them in but
0: so, but so you, here's my argument for why like I would I would argue pretty vehemently that he should or that at least he's doing it for the right reason, in that he's not just, he's trying to make you uncomfortable in the moment and force you to look at something that maybe you don't want to look at. But I think it has a broader purpose, which is to make you uncomfortable in your, like the rest of your life. Not, you know, to make you uncomfortable the next day and the next week, to make you realize that what you're watching here, oh my goodness, you know, there were, there were, there were Klansmen, there were white supremacists in Colorado in the eighties. Holy cow. Oh wait, Coda yeah, there were clansmen in 2017 publicly rallying or, you know, and, and there's a line in Defy Bloods that I think it it's almost the same line repeated twice in which someone says, it's strange how war never ends. And again, what he's doing there is trying to tell you, look, this is not just a problem of the past. You know, it's like the, the final moment in school days when uh, I forget which of the two characters it is, but they just yell, wake up. And it's like, that's what he's doing with this, sort of this grounding footage of this isn't just some fictional story for you to say, wow, that would be a crazy world. If we lived in it, we do live in it. Yeah. So I do think he's using those, those there, you know, they're, they're certainly provocative images, but they, I think they have a purpose.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it, it I, I agree. And I think it is probably important. Like I, like I said, these were images that I had avoided because I knew they were going to be upsetting, but not everyone has that privilege to avoid the upsetting realities of life and, and, you know, they have to be confronted,
0: you know, and, and I don't think it's, it's not even just the most lightning rod moments that he does this sort of Brechtian, like take you out of the story, remind you that you're watching a movie and not living real life. These, these moments, like he doesn't, you know, in summer of Sam, he opens and closes the movie with uh, Jimmy Breslin who was the, uh, the New York City reporter who got the letters from the Son of Sam. And he basically introduces it and talks about, you know, that summer was, well, it was just another summer. It was just another event that happened. And he does this in a lot of movies. He does a lot of direct to camera speeches where characters are talking to the audience. He does, like, you know, I mentioned the opening dance scene in Do the Right Thing uh, he, he sort of anchors movies in these moments that contextualize things that are happening and sort of remind you of what you're watching in a way that I think maybe isn't, maybe isn't always effective, but I think is, it usually works for me. And I think it's pretty indicative of his style and what he's trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we,
1: we talked about kind of the, the movies that Five Bloods evokes, and I'm curious whether there are actually any, any historical comparisons of, of filmmakers who Spike Lee reminds you
0: of, or who you can kind of, kind of draw a line between. So, I mean, look, I, you know, I, I would love to come up with like a really obscure reference here that blows everyone away. And then they are like, just feel motivated to go seek out the films of like Douglas Sirk or someone, but. Frankly, I just like, I think the obvious ones are right here for me at least. And like the two that popped into my head right away were Martin Scorsese and Sydney Lumet, and I think he evokes them for what I see as the obvious reasons, which are, he creates a picture of New York City that is extremely personal, but also universal and like relatable but i think what actually does it for me and the realization that i have slowly had is i think a lot of people because his prominent because of his prominence as one of the first mainstream successful black directors i think a lot of people and especially a lot of white moviegoers see him as the black film director they see his movies as being about race relations or black america Maybe they haven't seen 25th Hour or Summer of Sam or some of those other movies. But one thing I think that actually misses is the fact that so many of his movies are centered on working class, lower class people. And particularly working class New Yorkers. And you see it even in like a movie like Inside Man that is about, you know, it's a heist movie, but you have this moment where they have to interpret Uh, a language that's coming out of the the walkie-talkie that they can't understand. So they literally ask just a crowd of New Yorkers, they play it over a megaphone and they say, does anyone know what language this is? Which is just this like very characteristically New York thing, but also, you know, middle-class, working-class New York thing. And I think both Scorsese, having grown up in New York City in a a, a lower-class Italian community and Sydney Lumet, who was extremely dedicated to showing what, like, I almost see it as just street level, both like, the camera and the narrative are street level New York City, and showing the lives of people who have not often been glamorized in film and in cinema. And uh, I think Spike has done that across like a lot of his movies. And so that's that's the one of the one of the connections I see.
1: Yeah, I I really like both of those, and and I I really think the connections there and the strings that you can draw between those are are really strong. The 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 one I that immediately came to mind and, and I had to really kind of think about why is uh, Jacques Demy the 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 French filmmaker and I think what what kind of does it for me is there's a, a a stylistic comparison he's another guy who who took a lot of kind of big colorful swings and did a lot of things just his way and and he's zigging when others are zagging you he's a contemporary of a lot of the french new wave guys but he is taking and repurposing a lot of kind of classic hollywood tropes in a way that's a little more i think loving and and really using them to tell his own kind of story every jacques demy movie i think is clearly a jacques demy movie and it's colorful and sometimes it has these these non-sequiturs that kind of come out of nowhere and uh what are are the
0: jacques demy films that like most you most see sort of like that little bit of spike in
1: i think it's i mean you you talk about kind of his his big pastel musicals like the umbrellas of cherbourg uh the young girls of rochefort even something like you know bay of angels or uh Ville. these movies that are about that are really melancholy in a way and they're kind of forcing you to confront uh, things that are a little more uncomfortable not maybe to the same degree that spike does but but using the trappings of pure entertainment which i which i think is something that spike is very good at his movies are never less than entertaining even when they're they're big and, and obviously the criticism messy gets thrown at them and i think sometimes they are messy but in a good way it's it's messy because there's just so much and and that's great and that's what i love about that and uh and, and Demi can do that too in in uh in young girls of rush four there's a whole subplot that runs through the entire movie that's barely addressed about how uh there's just one person in this village during this musical who is a serial killer and it just kind of pops up here and there and uh, and that's the kind of thing you know Spike, I'm mad Russell, at myself for not watching said, that movie <laughs> it is it's great um but but i think just in in terms of kind of knowing how to make a movie and what a movie is and and how to use that to do what you want to do and to show what you want to show that that's the the link i see
0: i'm you know i'm glad you brought up the fact that he is called and can be messy uh, I think some people use the phrase "un" like I've seen "uneven" thrown around a lot. I prefer "messy" because I think of messy as it can be very good and it can be very bad. And the way I, you know, the way I see it is sort of that, like you can't t- you can't look at *The Five Bloods* and tell me that a movie about race and about war and about family and about like generational conflict is somehow too stuffed full to be representative of our world today. Like our world is so incredibly messy. And as long as all of those various pieces are coming from an honest place, which I think they are, I think they are in Spike movies. I think they are in the movies, you know, of like Scorsese, which I compared him to, I think like that works for me. It's when there's sort of like, Patched on pieces that feel like a screenwriter really wanted to add a theme or really wanted to just like add a character arc for no reason that like I have a problem with quote mm-hmm. unquote messy. So I I don't know Jacques Demy as well, but I think it's interesting that so like I you know I had said Scorsese and both Spike Lee and Scorsese made one or two really to moderately successful films and then took a big swing at a musical in which a lot of people called it a swing and a miss. New York, New York for Scorsese and School Days for Spike. And I know Jacques Demy has made a a couple of musicals, but I also know he made a number of non-musicals. Would you like, do you think that comparisons hold in that they're all really interested in playing with big form ideas and big form ideas rooted in like film and theater history to get across their messages, but it's not necessarily like the only thing they do.
1: Yeah. Jacques Demy is is very clearly, even his non-musical films are are very musical in a way that they have the okay. similar beats and rhythms. And that is something he is really, I think, kind of a, a master of. But, but I think you're right on the money with Spike in particular could make, you see it in school days. He does an entire musical number. He, he does it and she's got to have it too. He includes in these movies, these these two kind of elaborate musical numbers that are, phenomenal and shows that he really has the ability to direct a uh like kind of a full classic style musical I I know Chirac kind of gets into that that territory but but I guess I'm talking more you know the uh, the recent examples your La La Lands or whatever that may be I think he can do that and his musics have a rhythm and energy his uh sorry his movies have a rhythm and an energy to them that uh that would work really well for that. And Scorsese too, even though New York is a movie I really don't care for that much, he has those same kind of rhythms that he's very attuned to. And I think, um, you know, I think that's that's a skill that serves a lot of filmmakers really well.
0: So, and I think it's an interesting point because I, like, I found... So Spike Lee has had so many repeat collaborators throughout his career. He has worked with Barry Brown a dozen times. He's worked with Ruth Carter. He's, you know, the costume designer, Ernest Dickerson, the cinematographer. And then, you know, the actors you could name forever, but, you know, the you know Sam Jackson over and over and Giancarlo Esposito. And the one person that really stuck out to me as like his, not necessarily his go-to collaborator, but maybe the collaborator that defines his style is Terrence Blanchard who has composed the scores for a number of his movies, including Defy Bloods and Black Klansman, his most recent two. And I think that is because of the lyricism that his films have, even when they're not musicals. Yeah, Blanchard
1: I think is is really a great example of like kind of a perfect collaborator and the value of working with, with someone over an extended period of time. I think the score for the Five Bloods is 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 really excellent, but the the score that I find really interesting is is Black Klansman, which I I learned after rewatching. I didn't remember this uh, or, or probably even realize in the first place, but after rewatching Black Klansman and Inside Man, kinda back to back, uh, he is reusing a bunch of motifs from Inside Man in the Black Klansman score. And I think there's clearly a thematic point to that. That's, that's, you may not pick up on, probably unless you watch the movies back to back or you frequently listen to the Inside Man score. And it's a movie with, with lead characters who are both black cops trying to do their jobs, but also deal with, the The inherent kind of bigotry and racial animus in the police force and uh, and to reuse the the themes in such a way and to rework it really I think is is something that you can really only do if you are collaborating with the same person frequently, and that's that's really really exciting
0: all right so so that that, that brings us to the moment of the hour. Which is categorizing Spike Lee as an auteur. As we stated earlier, it is nearly impossible to put this man into a single definitive category, but we've got to do it.
1: Yeah, this uh, again, obviously, as as uh, evidenced by my my trouble distilling him above. This was this was difficult, and it's because I think he can fit in so many of the categories we've created. I think. You know, you could consider him a, a a writer first in some ways, and 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 I might go that direction if not for the fact that he, the movies he doesn't write are still so clearly Spike Lee movies that that, that I think that's not quite the the right fit for him. Uh, I, I think he's an expressionist. I think he's an entertainer. Uh, I think the nostalgia nerds is could be a really good fit for him. I think we see it we see it very clearly in Defive 5 Bloods, but you see it throughout his filmography. He has clearly a very deep understanding of film and filmmaking and film history and brings so many of those trappings in and and plays with them in a a, a really smart way in and, and so many of his movies but i think where i probably would fall is... so you just
0: need na- to be clear you just named i think half of the categories but now Correct. you're going to say it's something else okay so you were basically just trying to scoop me in any idea i had
1: uh and i mean hey you maybe you'll name the other half i mean who knows that's <laughs> that's the that's thing possible. the thing with spike but the one that i think for me makes the most sense is the film jock and that is because spike uses everything at his disposal he is a connoisseur of technique and he has created his own techniques and he has this visual flair and this kinetic energy and and he knows how to use those techniques i mean you have we haven't talked about the double dolly shot yet but he has this signature visual styling that he uses in a different thematic way a slightly different thematic way in so many movies as a way to key you in on what you should be feeling and it's crazy that someone just created that for themselves and the reason you feel like that when you see that shot is because of other movies this person has done that's that's fantastic but he uses all these techniques to like we said get right in your face and and make you uncomfortable but also make you laugh or make you cry or whatever it is but I think the way he does that is through his just complete command of filmmaking technique that tends to be fairly bombastic and so I think that that's where I would probably put him but I'm going to be easily
0: swayed Interesting. So that wasn't even on my list, but I I do think you you did a good job making the case. I had a number that you had. It's really hard for me to not stay nostalgia nerd when you quote Treasure of the Sierra Madre and you clearly reference both visually and narratively Apocalypse Now, both of those in Defy Bloods. But even like he named a character after Hedy Lamarr, the old gossip columnist from like 40s, Hollywood. And then in case you didn't get it, he had the person named after Hedy Lamar say her name was Hedy and have her say, oh, like Hedy Lamar. Like just in case you didn't get it. He loves those references. Even like having Isaiah Whitlock Jr. who played Clay Davis in The Wire and whose trademark line in The Wire was she like have him say that line in this movie was clearly just a guy who loves movies and TV. And he loves like not even showing that off, but just sharing it with other people. But I just, like, Spike represents so much that, like, I don't think it's even possible to, like, I can't put him in that category because even if it's a huge part of who he is, it just doesn't feel like the central piece of his identity. The one category that I, like, that you didn't mention that I think we could put him in is anti-auteur. I think he does a lot to elevate the people around him and you see this from the fact that he uses a lot of the same people over and over again. And it's not just a flip, you know, it's not just he asks Ruth Carter and Terrence Blanchard and Ernest Dickerson to work with him again, it's that they all choose to go work with him again because he elevates the work that they do. And more than that, it's not just that he elevates them, it's that he creates a whole product. He, he, you know, he takes all the disparate elements of the filmmaking process and he lifts them all up to become equals and melds them into one thing, which is why all these people love going back to him. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a compelling
1: argument, obviously for one that I didn't really consider. And I did, I looked at anti-auteurs, I looked at all of these, and I, I can't get past the fact that every movie, it's so clearly a Spike Lee movie it it is overriding he does he of course he elevates these these other collaborators and it is truly a a collaboration i think but i had a hard time envisioning a film where spike lee took a back seat even to the point where spike lee is often prominently in a spike lee movie Witch.
0: But isn't that part of, like, the auteur theory? I mean, our example for anti-auteurism was Jonathan Demi. And I would argue that you could say every movie, it, Jonathan Demi movie, is clearly Jonathan Demi. Like, it, that, that's clearly a Demi movie. Or, you know, the other example I'll use, and I'll actually, I kind of hit the ball here, and I saved my actual pick for way too late. But my actual pick here is is expressionism. And <laughs> I, I feel similarly to you in that, like, I could be convinced otherwise. But... You know, our, our example expressionist was uh, the filmmaker Wong Kar Wai who made In the Mood for Love and, and Chungking Express. And I would definitely say that every Wong Kar Wai movie is clearly a Wong Kar Wai movie. And like those movies are visually innovative and so distinct. I mean, you could mute them. I could have no, you could not put on captions. I could I could have no idea what's going on. And I would probably, you know, I probably wouldn't. I mean, I'm not that, Ridiculous! I wouldn't be able to know it's a one-car white movie, but like he would be one of the five people that I would guess that movie was because of his visual style. But because of and you said this when you were talking about Spike Lee's visual flair, you were talking about he makes these decisions in a way that he's he's trying to make you feel something, and that sort of like that made the case for me, and that I think everything he does is aimed at at leaving you with a certain feeling and to sort of again penetrate the like audience cynicism around film and ideas and whatever difficult substance he's putting in front of you and ultimately he's trying to make you feel it.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, uh I thought we were going to have a major argument for the first time about what category to put someone in because I thought, you know, you were saying we should put them in the the anti-auteur, but but no we can we can sidestep that uh, i uh, I think you're very on on target there in terms of his expressionism and why he fits as an expressionist and and that was for for most of the reasons
0: you listed that was you know right right up there for me I'm very torn between these two. I mean, you convinced me on film jock i i think I think maybe what expressionist gets at that maybe
1: film jock doesn't quite in the same way is i think spike lee with every single spike lee movie is really really trying to say something or a lot of somethings and those somethings that he's trying to say are deeply held beliefs critically important themes to him and he uses these tools that that I would, you know, these really fantastic visual tools that he has cultivated to he's not as much using them just because he can. I think to some extent yes. he yes. I think to some extent he he does and he can get a little carried away. But I think for the most part he is using it it is all coming from a place of I need to get this across and this is how I am going to do it. And this is how I am painting this picture. And so I think it, it makes sense for him to be an expressionist.
0: I, I think expressionists are like, it is ultimately a visual category the same way that, the same way that film jocks is. We're like learning more about our categories here, but I almost think it it marries the the two categories that like we both discussed, which were film jocks and writers first. In that, like as a writer first, you know, Spike Lee does have a lot to say, as you said, but he doesn't always say it through, like, he doesn't just say it through his scripts. He says it visually. He uses the visual tools of a filmmaker to get across what he feels and what he thinks and what he wants to say. And at the same time, he has these, you know, very showy shots like the double dolly, but he, you know, the double dolly is a good example. He does it once per film, not every film, but once in in each film that he uses it. And he uses it at a very specific moment to jar you as a viewer either at a climactic moment to sort of shake you or in his recent films at the end of the film to 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 make you feel this sort of sense of optimism and togetherness and uh you know he's not just like the kid who went to film school who was like I want to I want to do a, a 20 minute tracking shot just because I can I think I think that makes sense I think we talked ourselves into it we we talked for quite a while but we we made it Spike deserved robust debate on, on his categorization. I, I think so. Uh, I think so. We'll do Expressionists. All right.
1: So is it time for the letterbox game? I think it must be. So just as a, just as a reminder, the way the letterbox game works, each of us is going to pick one actor or crew member from the film we discussed this week, in this case, to Five Bloods, and the other person's going to have to guess that actor or crew member's top three highest rated films on the Letterboxd. There's going to be no TV, no unreleased movies. The Five Bloods will not count, and we'll give plenty of hints if the guesser gets stumped. All right, Zach, do you have one to start us off with?
0: I am going to give you Chadwick Bozeman, who played Storm and Norman in The Five Bloods.
1: Okay. I, I think it has to be, I think Black Panther has to be up there.
0: Black Panther has a surprisingly low three point seven. Huh. But not including Defy Bloods, which is at number three overall, which is excluded for, for this game. Black Panther is now the new number three, so correct.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. That is low for that.
0: Yeah, disappointingly so for a letterbox.
1: But Yeah, and that well, now now I do wonder. Maybe this is gonna be I wonder if it's just gonna be filled filled with marvel movies which you know he probably isn't uh what he deserves but well i'll go ahead and go avengers endgame
0: i'm sorry that movie that you just guessed i heard you say draft day and that is Mm. actually number number 16 on the list good guess though yeah avengers endgame is number one at 3.9 okay I
1: feel, I don't know where. I, I'm going to go with Get On Up.
0: Get On Up is number 12. It's got a 3.2.
1: Okay, that's lower than, than I thought that might be. Why don't you get, can you give me my letterbox rating
0: for the last one? Your letterbox rating is a 3.5. And, and of the people I follow, the scores range from 2 to
1: 4.5. Okay, that probably means it's Infinity War. So I'll guess Infinity War.
0: It is Infinity War. That is, uh, that's number two. It is at a 3.9 tied with, with Endgame. So that's three. That is three Marvel movies as his top three besides Defy Bloods. The next one okay. was another Marvel movie, Civil War. Ah. And the next one, and this, this, this will be the final question because I think it's interesting. Is, okay. The next one is the top rated Chadwick Boseman special, the biopic. Which biopic is it? It has a three point four, forty two, dead on.
1: Good. All right, all right. So he gets a couple good. I'm glad to see uh, Defy Bloods is is pretty high up there for him. We didn't talk about him much, but he's he's very good in it.
0: He is, yeah. And he doesn't have a, an easy task. He has to mm-hmm. deliver like the presence, the heavy presence that the entire movie revolves around, in very little screen time and amongst extremely accomplished older actors. And he does a good Correct. job.
1: Correct. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. All right. That was a good. Uh, that was a good choice on your part. Uh, I think for you, we're gonna we're gonna give you the man himself and see if you can get Spike Lee's. Top three highest rated films on Letterboxd.
0: Both an honor and a heavy burden.
1: You know what? I'm actually we're gonna we're gonna put a, a small a small twist on it. You're actually gonna have to get the top four, but I'm gonna tell you one is a documentary.
0: Okay. That's a fun twist. Yeah. We are not allowing TV though, right? Correct. Okay. So I will guess do the right thing.
1: Number one, number one with a 4.3. Okay. Let's see, it looks like the, it ranges among people I follow from, uh, let's see, four stars to five stars.
0: Yeah, and four stars is Sarah, yeah, my wife well. who was on last week, and it is a point of contention. <laughs> I'm pretty sure everyone I follow on Letterboxd gave it a five stars except for her. And it's not even four and a half, you know?
1: It's that uh, four, that's tough.
0: It's That's, oh, it's just brutal. Um, okay. I'm going to go with Four Little Girls, the documentary.
1: Four Little Girls is the documentary, and that is number three at a 3.9. Uh, When the Levees Broke is, is actually at number two, but I believe it is, is okay. television.
0: Yeah, and that, that, that's what I was wondering. Okay, now this gets interesting. What's, uh, what was that one's score?
1: When, the- uh. Oh, when the levees broke,
0: that's yeah. at a 4.2. Wow, okay. Jump all the way down to 3.9. Letterboxd, not a ton of appreciation for Spike. Yeah, that is there's... concerning. See, that's, see, the fact that... See, because I, I, I was thinking I could go one of two ways on Malcolm X here. It is obviously one of his most well-known and one of his most celebrated in a lot of corners, but Letterboxd can be finicky, and they can, like... They have an incel like corner of, of the app and it's true, right? It's the same people that propel, like a lot of the Marvel movies are very high up. I think Joker has like a 4.1. Not
1: that, and... not that we're saying that only incels like Marvel movies. I very much no, no, no. like the Marvel movies, I, I, just, I just to be clear.
0: I, I, I was definitely, uh, I was definitely inappropriately combining incel and like bro and, and film bro and which the Marvel movies are much more in the latter. Um, yes, and I also like a lot of the Marvel movies. Um, but I, I was thinking Malcolm X could go one of two ways, and I'm worried the fact that it is below 3.9 means maybe it went the the bad way and not the good way. But I, I won't forgive myself. I won't forgive myself in the morning if Malcolm X me- is in the top four and I don't guess it.
1: Yeah. So, so it is Malcolm X, and uh, and I think you uh things got confused a little bit because four little girls is the number three. Oh, 3.
0: i thought you said 9. when the levies broke was number two though
1: uh oh sorry i should have said four little girls is is the number four overall that's my that's my fault including when the levies broke Gotcha. so that's okay. my fault and it is malcolm x at four number four.
0: three eligible yes yes
1: okay so malcolm x at 4.1 okay oh so it correct. did go
0: that way okay yes. Good. Yes. Good. Yes. good yes good work so you're telling me I just criticized Letterbox for no reason. All these like letterbox stands.
1: Yep, yep. You called uh every letterbox user an in incel. Uh that that's
0: the takeaway. Good news. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Well, at least I'm three for three. But this is I mean, this was where it was always gonna get hard, right? Correct. Like my my personal choice might be twenty-fifth hour, but given the Oscar praise, I'm going to just go ahead and guess Black Klansman. That's right. You got a perfect, a All perfect
1: right. round. I think our first one, Uh a 3.9 for Black Klansman. Uh, 25th hour would be, it, it gets a little tricky with him because like passing strange is up next. Yep. And I don't really know where we, I probably wouldn't count that because it's a filmed theater piece, but that often gets that gets very high because only four hundred and eighty people have watched it. And then you get 25th hour right after that at a 3.8. Okay. Good work. I'm impressed. Alright. So Tune in in two weeks for the first of two episodes covering the work of Christopher Nolan and his collaborators in conjunction with Rough Cut Cinema's July Spotlight on Christopher Nolan. We do wanna give everyone the Nolan fix that hopefully we'll all need, assuming that Mr. Nolan and the studio come to their senses and hold off on releasing his next film, Tenet, until the public can feel safe about venturing to the movie theaters and seeing the film the way we are sure that he
0: intends. And in the meantime, be sure to check out Rough Cut for our final three days of Spike Lee Spotlight. Until next time. Thanks for listening.